Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am Sophia Apostle, and I am very excited for today. We have a really special episode for you. Um, recently, if you don't know, recently the American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, as we will often be saying, um, released new recommendations for how to monitor and treat, I'm saying treat in quotes, children according to their weight. So not health, just weight. So I have four incredible people who we're going to be exploring that with, and I'm going to introduce them in a second. But before I go any further, I want to um, share some content warnings for you if you're listening. Um, We likely will be sometimes using the O word, that is the word obesity. We hate this word, it's deeply stigmatizing. Uh, So we'll try to use it sparingly, but this word is how the report refers to fatness. So just know this word might come up. Um, Also, we're gonna be talking about intentional food restriction, weight loss medications, bariatric surgeries, Um, because they are talked about in these recommendations. And these can all be really hard things for people to hear about. Um, So, and also too, I think, especially because this is within the context of their recommended use in children as young as two. Uh, So if this is not the right time for you to listen to this episode, please step away, caretake yourself, come back if and when it feels good to do so. So let me do a little intro of who I'm so lucky to have with me um, and who's going to be diving deep into this controversy around these AAP guidelines. So we have Kanoi Lanny or Kanoi Patterson, um, who is a black and fat positive master's social worker who specializes in working with children, adolescents and families. Kanoi is also a power lifter if you don't follow her on social, definitely check it out. Kanoi, I love like your vids of like, you're just killing it. Um, And Kanoi is also the co-author of the anthology that's called Deconstructing the Fitness Industrial Complex, How to Resist, Disrupt, and Reclaim What It Means to Be Fit in American Culture. So cool, Kanoi. Welcome. Uh, We also have Dr. Rachel Milner, who is a psychologist and activist who supports people with eating disorders, disordered eating, and those wanting to heal their relationship with food and body. Rachel, you've been on the podcast before. I'm so glad you're back. Thank you. Um, and Rachel is a fat, also a fat activist, a fat positive provider, and works from a health at every size or haze and body trust framework. So welcome, Rachel. We also have Dr. Asher Larmy, who is a transgender non-binary GP. In Canada, we call that a family doctor. In other places, it's general practitioner. I think general practitioner, right? 
Um, with over 20 years of medical experience, um, Asher is a fat activist and also the host of a really great podcast that I suggest you listen to called the Fat Doctor Podcast. Fat Doctor UK Podcast. I apologize, Asher. Um, and we also have Reagan Chastain, who has also been on this podcast before. So welcome back, Reagan. Um, Reagan is a speaker, a writer, researcher, um, board certified patient advocate, um, multi-certified health and fitness professional and thought leader in the weight science, weight stigma, health and healthcare spaces. So Reagan also has an excellent newsletter called the called Weight and Healthcare Newsletter and a diagnostic specific resource called the Health at Every Side health sheets. Um, all of these people and all of their amazing work will be linked in the show notes for you. So how we're going to do this roundtable is starting with a brief summary of the AAP report. If you are listening and you want a lot of details like to go deeper into the 100 page report. Asher did an amazing three part series on their Fat Doctor UK podcast, where literally they go through every section of the report. Um, Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs on the maintenance phase podcast in episode recently, where they're going deeper into the details of the report as well. And Reagan did a three part series on the um, weight and healthcare newsletter, which was really great. So definitely links to the show will be in the show notes for all of those as well well. Okay, so now that all of that has been said, <laughs> Reagan and Asher, I'd love to start with you giving us just a little bit of a rundown on kind of the gist of this report um, to put some context for, our, for the rest of our discussion. So Reagan, do you want to start us off? Uh, so essentially, I'll start with the authors. The authors are all people uh, with the exception of two who did more editing work who have pinned their careers to the weight loss paradigm. Uh, so many own or run weight management clinics, weight loss surgery clinics for pediatric patients. Um, at least half the authors have taken uh, money from companies that make uh, pharmaceuticals that are recommended in the guidelines. So that's sort of the authors. The in their evidence review, they excluded any research that didn't have weight as a co-primary endpoint. So if a study looked at weight neutral health supporting behaviors, that study would not have been included at all in their review. So they specifically excluded anything but weight loss studies. Um, they made primary recommendations around what they call intensive health behavior lifestyle treatments or IHBLTs, which is essentially intensive dieting. And they recommend that for children as young as two years old. Um, they recommend weight loss drugs to kids as young as 12 and weight loss surgeries to kids as young as 13. Um, overarchingly in their research, one of the things we find is short-term research used to make long-term recommendations. So, for example, their research for the IHBLTs only had to show weight loss at three months. And we know that, you know, a century of research shows that most people, when they, when they attempt weight loss, will lose weight short-term and gain it back long-term. So that's ignored. Um, they also, it's important to understand that the, the pharmacotherapy recommendations they make, the drugs they're recommending primarily didn't exist when they did their literature review. So they made special dispensation to include them. Um, those are the, the manufacturers who, from whom half the doctors have taken payments. Also, GlaxoSmithKline, Genentech, and Novo Nordisk are direct funders of the AAP. Um, up to, I think, $49,999 a year. Um, so there's like that piece of it too. And I, I will also just say that 
None of that is disclosed. So their entire conflict of interest disclosure is that the AAP conducted its, an independent review for bias. They don't publish that review. They just say that it happened. And the fact that they're being funded by people whose drugs they're recommending means they're not in a position to do an independent review for bias. Um, and so I always say a conflict of interest isn't a sign, doesn't isn't proof that someone is biased, but it certainly is a red flag. But when you don't disclose it, that's then a red flag doused in gasoline and set on fire. And that's the kind of red flag we have in, in this report. So that's sort of an overview. Thanks, Reagan. Wow. Wow. I hope everyone listening is like already back on your heels going, what the fuck? Okay, Asher, <laughs> for your perspective. I mean, that was it. Like, I don't what am I supposed to add to that? That was it. That was, that was everything that needs to be said. Um, uh, a couple of bits that I found really disturbing um, was uh, the, the, the they didn't take into consideration any of the harms. When you are making recommendations for anything, there are two things you look at. One is the quality of the evidence. And uh, looking at all of the recommendations, they don't ever get really above a kind of grade B uh, and, and moderate. Occasionally they have some strong evidence, but I would question whether that was strong. So the quality of their evidence is really, really poor for some of the things, for example, for the surgery and for the drugs, the, the quality of the evidence is extremely poor. And so really when you have extremely poor quality evidence, you shouldn't be making recommendations based on that. But the second thing we look at is we look at the difference between the risks and the benefits. And the problem is we didn't look at risks. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even look at, they didn't mention eating disorders. They didn't look at the, the risks of, of, of any of these recommendations on the mental health and, um, and even the physical well-being of children. So if you don't even look at the harms, how could you possibly make a recommendation? You know, you just haven't even included that into your, into your, you know, literature search. They didn't even go beyond that. And that that was terrifying. If you look at the, even the first recommendation, the first recommendation is simply that pediatricians should be measuring the weight of every single child from the age of two until the age of 18 every single year based on, I don't know what evidence, but not real evidence. And they have not taken the risk of that. And I, I, I remember looking at that, just the first one thinking, something has gone terribly wrong here. And of course, Reagan has alluded to everything, all of the good reasons. Um, the, the, the point about the fact that the, the, the weight loss drugs, and I'm just going to call them by their name. So they are Saxenda, which was the, the, the literature report that they included, you know, after the fact, they waited around for Novo Nordisk to produce this lovely, um, Paper. And since then, Novo Nordisk has produced a study uh, on adolescents for their new drug, Wegovi. Uh, that's come out very recently. Uh, those, both of those papers are extremely poor quality um, and really have no business being included uh, with with such, you know, with, with they're so new, they're so new. We, we don't have any long term evidence. We don't have any, um, and it, nothing to look back on beyond a year, if that. By the time when they made the recommendations, it was less than that. Again, how a professional body could include that kind of evidence when making recommendations beyond shocked me. I, I, I just could not quite get my head around that. So those are the things that I'd like to add. But Reagan said it all summed it up beautifully. No, that's great, Asher. Wow. Oh, I've, I've, I've listened to a lot and read a lot about this. And I'm still like, every time I hear this, I'm just, I'm still so shocked. 
Oh, okay. So thank you for that summary that gives people a bit of an understanding of what came out um, in these, in, I think it was like 100 pages, right? This like 100 page document. Okay. So let's shift and talk a little bit about how these guidelines have been making their way into the world because people are starting to see this a little more. So think about like influencers on social media, responses from eating and non-responses from eating disorder organizations, how doctors, how you're starting to hear doctors are speaking to their patients about these guidelines. So I thought it'd be really great to go into what are you hearing from the people you work with? What are you noticing? And Rachel, let's start with you for this one. Yeah, so I appreciate that you said the non-responses from the eating disorder field because um, that's what it's been, a lot of non-response or attempts at responses that are really gaslighting and talking about, you know, quote-unquote collaboration, which just continues to perpetuate the harm. Um, No, the eating disorder field has a long history of this kind of behavior and harming higher weight clients. And sadly, I think this is further evidence that this field has a long way to go. Um, You know, I think our, we have three major eating disorder organizations, um, the National Eating Disorder Association, um, IADAP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and then AED, which is the Academy of Eating Disorders. And, um, IADEP has said nothing, and not only have they said nothing, they have not, there's chapters in various locations, and many of the IADEP chapters are run by folks who are fat positive and who are anti-diet, but IADEP shut them down as well. So IADEP has said nobody can say a word, including individual chapters. Um, so they've, they've completely shut this down. NIDA and AED are claiming that they are, you know, collaborating with the authors of this paper and working together. And they've done sort of this dance around, well, if we work together, we're going to somehow reduce harm. But as we know, there's no way to work together in the realm of weight stigma to then somehow reduce weight stigma. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so what I'm seeing is a lot of my clients really let down, you know, like I work a lot with folks with eating disorders and most of the folks that I work with are, have marginalized identities in some way and have already been harmed by the eating disorder field. And so they're experiencing further harm and both not surprised and then also really sad that the field hasn't progressed more than what we would hope it had. Um, And so the eating disorder organizations are being called out and there's still silence. Um, I do wanna note that um, the Fed Up Collective, Project Heal are some eating disorder organizations out there that are doing great work. So there are organizations that are more recently formed, which is amazing. And these like, eating disorder organizations that have been around for a long time continue to have talks about weight loss at their conferences. So that's that's where we are. And so sadly, it's not a surprise that they are claiming that they're collaborating. Um, but I think then the eating disorder field needs to say, like, you know, a warning alert, we are not safe 
for anybody who doesn't fit the stereotype of a thin white cis straight woman. Rachel, thank you. Oh my gosh. Um, for anyone not watching the video, <laughs> you should see the panelist faces. We're all like, what? And like heads thrown back, eyes rolling, just to paint a picture if you're listening to the audio of this right now. Oh my gosh. All right, Kanoi, what about you? You work, you know, your work is with children and families and adolescents. Like how, how is this showing up for you? What are you noticing? I'm going to say, like, as someone who was a fat child, was a fat adolescent, am a fat adult, like, I am a lifelong fat person, and I never, and when I was my client's ages, I never got help for um, eating disorder behaviors, restrictive eating disorders. I never got help for that. Um, and... Now, with this paper coming out, I know that I never would have gotten help um, because I have a hard time collaborating with people that are, their purpose is to harm me. And their purpose is that they hate who I am as a person, you know, and whether people like it or not, like, like fat people deserve to be, to just exist. Um, so to collaborate with what you would say, like I kept saying in my head over and over. So we're going to collaborate with the enemy. <laughs> that's what kept going on in my, like my, in my brain is like, because that's who these people are. Um, so when people come to me, like, you know, I don't specifically, I work with a lot of trauma. Um, obviously I've got a lot of kids that are, have to deal with trauma that are in the system. I have a lot of um, clients that are in the foster care system and things like that. Um, I deal with a wide range of races of children, um, all kinds of identities um, from, I mean, clients as young as five um, are kids that I work with. And it's like as young as five, like I'm having to like, you know, I'm having to help them understand that just because someone calls you fat, that doesn't mean being fat is a bad thing. And, you know, so it's like, that's how it shows up for me. Um, or it shows up by a parent coming in and saying like, they went to, you know, they went to the child's pediatrician and they're saying that they're overweight, over what weight, um, <laughs> that they're overweight. And like, they want to talk to me, like how to talk to them. And of course, like, I always immediately go to, well, that's just like, let's just also understand that if your child is larger than other children, body diversity is real life. Like people exist in all kinds of bodies. Um, and that's kind of the framework that I explain to parents is that it's okay if you don't look like your friend and that it's important that, you know, that you know, you eat when you're hungry, that you listen to your body and things like that. And, you know, and they're hearing things from their friends and their friends are saying things about their body. Um, and that's, I think the biggest thing I tell parents is stop commenting on your children's bodies. Um, regardless of what your doctor told you, do not make comments about your child's body and do not especially make comments about your own body in front of your child because they will take on that 
and that will be who they that's going to be like down the line will be a constant problem because they saw you do it. Um, and they're like little sponges. They take everything from us. Definitely. We have just a lot of families that are going to be and are being harmed. Um, especially for children who look like me, um, children that are black, um, and children that are Brown, um, children that are indigenous, um, they are not being listened to now um, and are not being listened to by their doctors because I know I'm not. Um, I have to go in there with like defensiveness immediately um, and tension um, and then have the nerve to tell you that your blood pressure is high. Well, my blood pressure is high because I'm stressed out before I even walk in the store. So I'm seeing this in... I'm seeing it in different ways in that, you know, parents always talk to me about what, you know, what happened at the doctor. And that's how I'm um, seeing these guidelines is, you know, by whatever their, these practitioners are telling my clients' families to do with them. Um, I haven't heard of any, and none of my clients yet have been asked to um, start any weight loss drugs um, at this time. Um, I have a, I have a very small amount of people also that I see that are adults. Um, and so that's a different conversation as well, completely than with children. Right. Yeah. Wow. Oh, thank you, Kanoi. That's, it's so good to have that perspective come in and I can, I hope it doesn't, but I can imagine as these guidelines start to spread, as the word is spread to doctors, there, there might be some things coming into you. Oh, thank you. Um, Reagan, what about your perspective? You work a lot with doctors. So how are you seeing these guidelines coming in? Yeah, so I was going to talking about before we recorded, the guidelines came out on a Monday and I was giving grand rounds at Minnesota Children's Hospital on Thursday. And so I was really nervous, like, how is this going to go? Obviously, they would know about them. And I was really, I will say, pleasantly surprised at how much pushback there was from the pediatricians in that grand rounds who were like, this just doesn't sound right. And I also have been heartened by, uh, I do a lot of training about how to understand weight science research for healthcare practitioners. And the number of people who emailed me and were like, I saw this and I noticed this and this is short term and how did they get away? And so like the fact that people could see, because I mean, it really is very blatantly obvious. There's some things that are more sort of subterfuge. The fact that they were like, there are no harms for this with no kind of citation, ignoring all the lived experience of people screaming at them, right? The fact that they were like, there's, you know, this actually lowers the risk of eating disorders and that they did that by eliminating the symptoms of eating disorders that they're literally prescribing, right? So like, there's a lot of things that are more subtle, but the research stuff is really clear. So I was happy about that. I also hear because of the advocacy work I do for patients from scared parents, right? Who are looking for, all right, I want to gear up. I have to take my kid to the pediatrician. I'm afraid this is going to come up. What are my, you know, what do I say? What do I do? How do I push back? How do I protect my kid? All of that. And, you know, as with everything, this is doing the most harm to those at the highest weights and those with multiple marginalized identities and in particular black and brown kids. And one of the things that they do in the guidelines, and I, I have white privilege. I do not intend to be like white explaining racism to anybody. Um, but the, one of the things they do in the guidelines is suggest that like the real racism is that black and brown kids don't have enough access to weight loss. And this is something that we're seeing in adult populations as well. It's a, like a Novo Nordisk, um, 
uh, manufactured line that they're sending out through uh, physicians and researchers. And so this is sort of like the, the thing is like, oh, like the real problem here is that these poor kids who are black and brown don't have enough access to weight loss drugs and surgeries and IHBLTs, right? So there's like all this that more deeply impacts those populations as this always does. Oh, I think all of our blood pressures just spiked. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's horrible. Holy it's, shit. It's so dangerous. It's so, I mean, there's obviously a lot of work to co-opt um, the language of anti-weight stigma and fat activists in order to, you know, to support these weight loss recommendations. But that particular piece to me is so horrific and unconscionable, like let alone unsupported by evidence. Like who at that point, who cares? Like the problem is <laughs> the, the, like the blatant attack on these kids, um, kids who are not included in a lot of the height weight tables, right? So you've got these, I can see Asher is like, screaming because this is like you take 30 year old studies that are mostly white kids and then you apply that to black and brown bodies and you go oh you're you're too big and then the real racism is that we don't try to harm you enough to make you smaller like that whole construct is just so steeped in white supremacy so that piece uh, you know is a huge part of it as well and i just i want to say with these eating disorders groups like you know as rachel said a lot of them came through and what I've been saying is every reputable group has stood against these guidelines and then somebody's like but Nita didn't and I'm like yes every reputable eating disorders group has pushed back against these guidelines like some of the like just let them be the pallbearers at my funeral so they can let me down one more time these groups like they need to know better than this they do know better than this and it's unacceptable that they're not doing better than this yeah oh yeah thank you Reagan all right, Asher, how are you seeing this start to show up in your world and the work you do? So I have a few things to say. The first thing is that um, our definition of the O word, I'm not even going to say it out loud, I'm so angry right now, uh, in children, it's not the same as in adults. In adults, we have cutoffs, right? We say above 30, above 40, whatever. In children, we look at um, percentiles, which percentile they're on. So they look at the at like a curve, um, of of weights and heights for children, based on almost 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 only white children, I will say. Actually, they have actively excluded other children, uh, and especially black children, brown children, indigenous children, as we've already alluded to. So, only white children. They have a curve, and anyone that's beyond the eighty fifth percentile is considered quote unquote overweight, and everyone uh, beyond the ninety fifth percentile is considered the o, you know the O word. Which means no matter what happens, whichever way the, sh the curve shifts, there will always be children in the 85th percentile onwards. It doesn't matter how big these children are. They're always going to find a way to sell weight loss drugs to children. That's the first thing. And that, it, it, it bugs me because we're just talking about like people on one end of a graph. I mean, it's just a curve and there will always be people on one end of the curve. What you'll find, of course, is them, as we've said, are far more likely to be black are more likely to be um, uh, brown indigenous because they were excluded and because we know that body mass index is different for different races. I remember distinctly having a friend uh, who is, um, she's, she's British, but she's of African descent, uh, who was teeny tiny, you know, really, really slim. And I remember her saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm considered overweight. And I kind of looked at her and was just like, don't be ridiculous. Like she was tiny. Um, and she said, yeah, I've always been considered overweight. And that's just my life because I'm black. And I remember the first time 
she said that I didn't really understand why that was relevant. So now that I've looked into the research and I've gone, oh, oh no, that's a fact. The second thing I want to say is that this is impacting without a doubt the poorest uh, most marginalized children. So the ones that I'm seeing and the ones that I'm hearing from um, are almost universally uh, impacted by classism and racism without doubt, um, especially racism. So if you're um, black and poor, and, you know, can I kind of client base, I guess, a lot of the kids that you're seeing are going to have had, um, they won't have had access to the best of healthcare in the first place. These are the ones that are already being pushed sort of gently towards it, you know, and, and the reason is because autonomy, um, children, children, first of all, lack autonomy, right? The right to consent, especially in the States, they lack the right to consent. And in, in Scotland, where I live, once your child turns 13, it's not only that they have the right to consent, but a parent has no business being in a consultation with a child until the child specifically consents to the parent being there. If I phone up my child's doctor and I say, I want to talk to you about my kid, they're like, fine, but is the kid there? Because if they're 13 and over, that's tough. We can't discuss anything. That's the difference in Scotland compared to other countries. But when a child doesn't have consent and their parent is consenting for them, their parent needs to have autonomy, right? They need to be able to make a decision. So first of all, they need to have all the right valid information, which they're not getting because they're just lying on these guidelines. But second of all, they have to have agency. They have to have power. They have to be able to say no to a doctor, which is hard for everyone, but it is extremely hard for, for those that are most marginalized. And I'm going to say something very controversial right now. I, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I, if you are black, if you are brown, if you are indigenous, doctors are your enemy. They are actively trying to harm you. Now, not all doctors, but you know, we also say not all men, like, you know, it's not all doctors, but the profession, the medical profession is actively trying to harm you and has been actively trying to harm you for the last couple of hundred years and beyond. We are set up to harm the most marginalized people. We are the enemy. So when Kamala was like, what are we going to collaborate with the enemy? Doctors are your enemy. If you're fat, I'm sorry, but doctors are your enemy. And so the very people who you're trusting to look after you and to look after your health are the very people that you cannot trust to look after you and look after your health. That is such an awful situation. And and I, I guess because children have that inability to consent for themselves, it's. I, I think they, they struggle the most, right? Because they are perhaps some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. And so the fact that we are going harder for them than we are for a lot of other people just breaks my heart. You know, these guidelines are pretty extreme, uh, I think, more extreme than, say, some of the guidelines for adults, in certainly where I live. Um, and if they're more extreme than the guidelines for adults, what are we thinking when we're willing to harm children? There is one study where there was a, a loss of life and, a, um, you know, a person unalived themselves in this study. And the study just said, well, uh, it had nothing to do with the drug that they were on. And I was just like, really? Um, is that where we've gotten to? That, that loss of life isn't even important anymore? Um, I could go on. I won't. It's just... I mean, my blood pressure is really high right now. I, I'm almost having palpitations. It's that upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Asher. Oh, yeah. Maybe we all just take one breath right now. Yeah. We took some breaths as a group before we started recording. <laughs> if you're listening and your blood pressure is feeling high, take a couple breaths. This is really hard stuff. 
All right. So now that we have a sense of what people are experiencing, what each of you have been noticing, um, I think it would be really, um, I, I would just, I'd love to hear about from from your point of view, the impact that these guidelines will have based on your work, your experience. This is a little possible crystal ball gazing, but I feel like each of you are experts in your field. You've been doing this work a long time. Um, and we've already been talking, but I also just want to, you know, also name like especially for marginalized, for BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, like what are your worries about the people that you support, the people that you work with? Uh, so, Kanoi, let's start with you for this one. I think this these guidelines are just detrimental. Um, I mean, most most of the communities I serve are, are poor, um, and they, meaning, um, exactly what Asher said, that they are, like, in my state, I'm in the state of Oklahoma, um, they're on Sooner Care or Medicaid, and so they're already getting bottom barrel for everything, and so then you want to say that, you know, the reason why it's that way is because we don't have access to weight loss things. Like if we had access and what it brings me to is this idea that we have to constantly get people to assimilate, um, whether it's cultural assimilation or in fatness and, and, and we will get you to assimilate or we will harm you. And that's exactly what this study is doing. It is actively harming people. And then a lot of my clients will talk about their, if they had doctor's appointments, parents will tell me what happened. Um, and the ki or the kids will tell me. And to see faces, you know, them thinking that they're bad, um, that they're bad children because they don't look like their friend or, Miss Kanoi, I have a tummy. And like, well, Miss Kanoi has a tummy. And like, that's absolutely disgusting that this is where we are as a society to children and to these babies. Um, and as you can hear from my voice, I'm very, very protective. I'm very protective of my families um, because no one else is, um, which means for my kids that are especially like my neurodivergent kids that already have issues. Like I'm the one that has to get into teachers faces and, you know, and get be on people's different things, you know, call me and advocate for them. Um, because as a social worker, that's what I do. That's my top thing. I love doing is advocating for other people that are not being listened to. It's not that they don't have a voice. It's that they are unheard. And they don't, people don't care. And so like what I get from the AAP is that they legitimately just don't care. They've just had the balls enough to put it in a hundred page paper and pretty much tell fat people and fat children, we don't give a fuck about you. And they just need to say it because that's what I hear from that. And so all I, all I can see from the kids I see is 
kids wanting to self-harm, um, suicide rates increasing, um, children in crisis, and kids following eating disorder behavior because they are trying to assimilate. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kanoi. And I love that you get up in people's faces. <laughs> like they, you're such an advocate for the people you serve. Wow. Asher, what about you? What are your worries? Especially as a GP, like, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you have to understand about these guidelines, they're not just for like, you know, weight specialists, pediatricians, whatever, they're for all pediatricians. And I know it's different in the States. Uh, you know, you're, if you're a kid, you're seeing a pediatrician. If you, in the UK, if you're a kid, you're seeing a GP. So I do 98% of pediatrics. Um, very, very, very few children actually ever see a pediatrician. You have to be really sick to see a pediatrician. You have to beg me basically to see a pediatrician, unfortunately. That's the way the National Health Service works. But so basically these guidelines are, are written for me. Uh, and I do not have the time uh, to do to critically appraise national guidelines. You know, when when when, when a, an organisation that I'm supposed to respect and trust says this is what you do, this is what you do. You don't question it. Uh, and I'm terrified. Like I said, I'm supposed to be weighing children every year of their life. <laughs> no, that that in itself has been shown to cause eating disorders. That in itself is going to get that little kid that's saying, Miss Kanoya, I have a tummy just going to the doctor and being weight is enough to start that to trigger that process and we know this uh, that's just the first recommendation forget all the other stuff but i'm already seeing children or parents of children talking about the possibility of weight loss drugs talking about the possibility of weight loss surgery you know is that something that we should consider because i read about it or i heard about it and so it's not that the doctors are necessarily promoting it yet but the parents are already thinking about it and if the parents believe that is in the best interest of their children you know some, sometimes parents are the worst enemy and they i don't think they mean to be but they don't know any better a doctor is saying your child's life is at risk you need to do this and and it couldn't be further from the truth i, I cannot explain when i was learning medicine 20 years ago we weren't allowed to use body mass index on children. We were just told, leave children alone. This obsession with fatness in children is new. It is a new thing. And what are we seeing? We're seeing spiking rates of eating disorders. And that's not my specialty, so I'll leave that for Rachel to do. But but we're seeing um we're seeing children really as young as five, six, who are already restricting, who are already um, you know, performing disordered eating. Like it it terrifies me and you know can i mention neurodivergent kids i mean this terrifies me as well because we know about the link between eating disorders and neurodivergence and also neurodivergent kids you know they need that extra support but there's no there's no mention of this i mean that's actually that's a lie racism is mentioned in these guidelines as is neurodivergence as is um weight stigma and what they do is they talk about it like Raken says and then they but they talk about it from the you know from the perspective of we need to help solve racism by you know making black children thinner that that is literally what they say and they say the same for all of you know other children with learning disabilities they say these things and you just think i, I can't believe that you could be so unfeeling and so uncaring but it is going to cause massive mental health problems in children i, I mean there are enough mental health problems in children already 
Uh, I have never, ever seen it this bad. In the last 10 years of my career, I am terrified, especially because of the pandemic. The pandemic changed everything for our kids uh, and our adolescents. And now going into that, literally, they're just coming out of the pandemic and boom, we're weighing them, we're telling them to stop eating, we're telling them to consider drugs. And of course, you know what else is going to happen? And this isn't a problem in of itself, but our kids are just going to get fatter and fatter. Now, I don't have a problem with children getting fatter at all. What I have a problem with is weight cycling because it's not going to be, it's going to get thinner and then fatter and then thinner and then fatter. And so it's not that the kids are going to get fatter, it's the kids are going to be weight cycling. At the ages of 10, 12, 14, what is going to happen to their physical, biological health? Are they going to develop diabetes at younger ages? Are they going to develop other health problems at younger ages because they're being forced to diet from the age of two? We have no idea what that's going to do to kids. The weight, the, the research into weight cycling is abysmally poor, considering that there are so many concerns about it. The research is virtually non-existent. Why? Because nobody's interested in it, because no one's funding it, because it doesn't sell weight loss drugs. So this also terrifies me about the actual health of these kids going forwards over the next, not just the mental health, not just the eating disorders, but the physical health as well. Um, but the mental health, most importantly. And I think I'm hoping that Rachel will cover that, especially in terms of eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you, Asher. Yeah. All right, Rachel, we're going to come over to you now. What are you worried about? There's so much to be worried about. Um, I mean, I think that kids are going to die because of these guidelines. And what I think about is how many kids are going to die, either die by suicide or from other ways, and their death is going to be blamed on fatness. And it's going to then reinforce or propel these people to continue with this narrative. Um, and so that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, you know, I think that we already know from research that was done many years ago that kids, at least in the United States, as young as kindergartners, have already learned to associate fatness with negative descriptors. And now we're taking an entire, you know, healthcare system, and I say that sort of hesitantly because I don't actually think it's based on health at all, but we're taking this system and we are having providers tell kids that they're right, that, you know, fatness is bad and we should be avoiding fatness at all costs at a time when kids deserve to just be enjoying being in a body, right? Like getting to know what it means to live in this world in a body and navigate the world and then we're telling them, no, there's something wrong with you. You need to change it. And it's coming from the people that they are supposed to be able to turn to, to care about them and to help them. And, you know, I think, like Asher said with the parents, I, I think most parents have good intentions for their kids. And that doesn't mean they're not doing harm. And so I think a lot of parents have this idea of we want to, you know, protect our kids. And one way we can try to protect them is by helping them to not be fat, either to lose weight or not be fat, um, not gain weight. And basically then the parents are also turning into the bullies. You know, so now we've got parents bullying their kids. We've got, you know, physicians bullying these kids. And all that we're teaching them is that if you get bullied, 
what you need to do is figure out how to change that thing about you instead of us working to change a whole system that bullies people. Um, you know, in terms of mental illness and eating disorders, I think they are laying the foundation already to try to argue that these interventions don't increase eating disorders, which is bullshit. But there was just a meta-analysis that came out about adults, which, you know, I'm a clinician, not a researcher, and it didn't take me long to read this thing and know what a piece of shit document it was, but that's already this foundation that they are laying, and what they actually said in this meta-analysis was that we don't actually know how to screen for what they called restrictive eating disorders. They are saying BED, binge eating disorder, is not a restrictive eating disorder. I would argue that it is, but for the purpose of the meta-analysis, what they are saying is they're including anorexia and bulimia separately from binge eating disorder. And what they are saying, they say it in their own meta-analysis, is we don't know how to screen for these eating disorders in higher weight people because none of the screening tools were normed on higher weight people. We don't know what questions to ask. So they're saying it doesn't increase risk of eating disorders that they themselves are saying we don't know how to screen for. So <laughs> you know, it's, it's really fucked up and horrifying. Um, so I think eating disorders, which are already on the rise, and you know we've seen over a hundred percent increase in eating disorders in kids and adolescents. You know our local eating disorder unit here, they are having to turn kids away because they don't have any beds available. And now we're going to see even more kids with eating disorders. And this is trauma, and we know that trauma imp impacts people throughout the lifespan. So it's not only the mental health of kids, it's then the impact on their mental health as they move through the lifespan and how that is gonna affect them. Any client I have who has experienced weight stigma from a provider of any sort, but especially a medical provider, can tell me everything that was said to them, at what visits, who said it, like, this is stuff that stays with you. And so we're going to see a mental health crisis across the board of all ages from these guidelines. Oh, yeah. Wow. Thank you, Rachel. Oh, my gosh. All right, Reagan. <laughs> Reagan, what worries you? Oh, so much worries me. Um, I So I feel like the mental health issues have been really well covered. I want to talk a bit about the physical health issues. First of all, we don't know what happens, you know, as Asher pointed out, when we interrupt a child's growth cycle to give them an intensive weight loss intervention at two. We have no idea what that does to a child. No, no clue. Um, the drugs that they are recommending have significant, some of them life-threatening side effects. And I want to point out that Novo Nordisk study that got them approved, so their approval for these their weight loss drug Wagovi for ages 12 and up, came through just days before these guidelines were published. And as Novo Nordisk is a funder of both the AAP and a bunch of the authors, like I have a lot of questions about the timing on that. Um, but it's a 68-week study for a drug that they're saying kids will have to be on for the rest of their lives. We have no idea, no idea. And weight loss had leveled off in the 68 weeks. Right. And we know that when they go off the drugs, the weight goes right back up. And again, no problem with kids who are fatter, fatter than they were. Big problem with intentional, with things that are being considered healthcare interventions that have the opposite of the intended effect and a ton of additional harm. 
right? All of this is not okay. Surgeries, recommending weight loss surgeries. I don't think they meet the threshold of ethical evidence-based medicine for anyone, but for children, what we do, what they're doing, they take a healthy, perfectly functioning digestive system. They create a permanent disease state, forcing restriction and or malabsorption depending on the, the procedure. If this happens to a child because of an illness or an accident, it is considered a tragedy. If the child is fat, it is considered health care. And they are asked to pay for it. Again, we don't know what happens. What we do know is that kids who require um, medical care, when they go through like their adolescent rebellious stage, which they're supposed to do, um, tend, like kids with cystic fibrosis will be like, I'm not doing these things anymore, right? It will kill them if they don't. And they're still like, no, like I'm done. I won't do this. Kids will refuse to take meds. And so we're talking about a surgery that changes the way they eat in a way that will other them for their whole lives. Every birthday party, every school lunch, every single day, every time they're eating, they're eating differently than everyone around them. Every holiday, every, you know, event, they're going to be different. And so they're going to be othered. So even if they, you know, did become thin, they're still othered in other ways. And we know that there's a lot of like weight regain with these surgeries. So there's like all of this, not to mention that the research that they use to support these surgeries, five of the seven studies are looking at the same 81 kids. Oh my God. Five of the seven. 81 also, 81 children. They're all short-term and studies of weight loss surgery in youth and adult populations tend to believe successes if the person is below their original weight and didn't die. So people who say, I would give anything to take the surgery back, it's ruined my life, are counted as successes in these studies, right? So like that's completely unconscionable. I want to point out that the weight cycling that Asher was talking about, they've actually very specifically like created a graph to rebrand. So they're now calling it relapsing, remitting, quote unquote, obesity, right? So like if there's some kind of award for moving the goalpost and declaring victory, these people should get it. Like who's their chief marketing officer? Because like, come on. I have a couple of friends who have MS, relapsing, remitting courses, and both of them were like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like this is such a gross way to like see this talked about. So they're basically rebranding weight cycling as a, as a successful intervention, right? And they say in their own guidelines, yeah, many kids won't experience a BMI change and those who do, it'll be one to 3%. And they're likely to weight cycle. And we're, it's just like they say, like that's, that's this rebranding of it's a chronic lifelong health condition like asthma or diabetes. First of all, it's not because there's no shared symptomology or cardiometabolic profile. It's a shared weight and height ratio or percentile in youth populations. Um, but beyond that, it allows them to rebrand their shitty interventions that don't work as successful as long as they originally cause ignoring all the harms of weight stigma. Um, I, there's also, so they're essentially blaming weight stigma on fatness and trying to solve weight stigma through weight loss. And no matter what you believe about weight and health, the idea that stigmatized people should have to change themselves to suit their oppressors is always wrong. Always. Does not justify any of this. Shouldn't even have been included in these guidelines. And I think overall, this is going to, you know, as everyone has said, it's going to harm a lot of kids. It's going to kill kids. Those who are harmed and killed are likely to be the most marginalized. And it reinforces this idea that they want us thin or dead and they don't much care which. Yeah. Okay. 
So it's bleak, <laughs> is what we're saying. What can we do? What actions can we take as individuals, as parents, as allies? Like, what the fuck do we do? Kanoi, let's start with you on this one. I think one thing is what we're doing right now is talking about it, naming it, naming what's going on, because this idea that we're renaming things and we're trying to get people to believe things that they know isn't true is bullshit. You know, let's just name things what they are. And, you know, especially when we're talking about children who don't have any autonomy, you know, which means their parents are, um, you know, consenting to these things, you know, I talk about that even with myself, like, you know, I was very much um, exactly what Asher was talking about. I was that child. I was put on those non-consensual diets. These diets, I didn't consent to. And I was put on those diets and I weight cycled my, I mean, the from childhood through, I don't know what damage all of that from that time did to me. And then the weight cycling as an adult. So who knows? Um, but what I do know is the damage that it did to me on the inside and in my head. Um, and that's why I tell people like, like, this is my life's work because I don't want any other kids harmed by this. And so it's like the way we stop it is by talking about it. But also I, sp I think I've, especially in this field is to get more people that do look like me more at the forefront because these are the communities that are most being harmed and we we need to be able to have those conversations with these families because i think the thing that we're not seeing is like or what's not being discussed is the power dynamic that lies within you having a doctor i go through this with my own parents um, with, well, I don't want to question the doctor because he said such and such. And I'm like, well, that's bullshit. I was like, he's a person. So I'm I, I, like, do you need me to go to the appointment? Ever the advocate. <laughs> like, because I think you can question anybody. I tell my clients, you can question anything I do. I am not perfect. I am a human being. Question what I do. Because they are not infallible. And so the inherent power dynamic in a doctor and a patient relationship like that immediately gets them consent to do things to children because people just believe them and so especially in our more marginalized population we need people that can talk to that that it can explain to them that this 100 page piece of shit document is not is going to harm your child and why it's going to harm them. You know, seeing people with that lived experience that have been through it already will help as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Kanoi. Yeah. Rachel, how about you? What can we do? I think that one thing to remember is that one person can have a huge impact on kids and adolescents. You know, that of course, we want them to have community support and a lot more than one person, but one person saying, 
you're okay how you are. One person saying it's fine to be fat. One person, just one adult living their fat life without apology. Like that has a huge impact on kids. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to be harmed, but it does mean that they are at least going to have an example of what life could be like and can be like. And, you know, there's going to be a time where they have more of a voice and it's an example of how they can start to use it. Um, so it's easy to be hopeless, but I do think that people have more power than maybe we realize when it comes to kids and adolescents. Um, the other thing is, I think this is an area where we really need thin allies to be speaking up. One of the things that has come up a lot with my clients, many of whom are higher weight adults who have kids, that they are hesitant, they're fearful that when they walk into a doctor's office and advocate on behalf of their children, that then they're going to face anti-fat bias or they're going to be written off as, you know, well, this, of course, this parent is saying this because of the size of their body. And I think the more smaller body parents are also speaking up, it then creates more change, which, you know, I think is sad and people with more privilege speaking up will often have an impact, especially I think on these medical providers. So, you know, I'm working with my clients to also advocate on behalf of their kids. And, you know, as a parent, Asher and I were talking earlier, I have um, two 10 year olds who, you know, I navigate this world and I have a ton of privilege um, when I'm walking into a medical provider's office with my children and they have listened and done a decent job. So I know their pediatrician doesn't have a freaking clue about any of this, like not a clue, but she agreed not to say anything about weight or food or exercise. Like she at least could do that. So I think there may be times where providers are willing to at least not speak about it, even if they don't fully understand it. Um, but I do think, you know, as parents, the more we can advocate on behalf of our kids, the more we can protect them, the less harm they're going to deal with. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. Reagan, how about you? What can we do? Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's about figuring out where do we have power, privilege and leverage and how can we use it? And in particular, how can we use it to center the voices of people who have less power, privilege and leverage than we do? Right? How can we have the back of people like Kanoilani and other people who are doing this incredible work and who don't have like a, a, the ton of like white privilege that I have um, and other privileges as well, obviously. And then understanding that we can't do everything, but we can do something and the things that we do matter. I think too often we feel like if we can't like, it feels like there's so much to do that there's just no point in doing anything. And it's like that, you know, the sort of uh, the starfish into the sea example, right? Well, it makes a difference to the starfish you throw back in, right? So it's just about to me figuring out how do we, you know, do individual change in our own lives? Where can we make work? And then how can we work together and collaborate and center the voices of marginalized people to make grander change and know that, you know, I mean, I have hope because I believe things will get better, but I also have hope because the alternative is untenable to me, right? So I maintain hope and I 
wake up every day and I do what I can. And, you know, that's, I think that's how I deal with it. And that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Reagan. Asher, how about you? So look, I'm going to say something and be very blunt here. Um, and I hope I don't cause any offense, but when you close your eyes and you think about that child who is going to explain you know, the, the child that we're worried about, the child that we are desperately anxious for, I want that child to be black and fat. I want you to stop thinking about anyone else. And I'm sorry, perhaps that may sound a little extreme, but I want you to stop focusing primarily on black children because the foundation of anti-fatness is anti-blackness. And I, you know, I think we talk about privilege and we talk about, you know, people get closer, let, let me speak, but actually we have to do more than just let you speak. Like, of course, that's a good start, but there's got to be so much more than that. When I close my eyes, the kid I see is a black child and I am advocating for that child and everybody else comes second. Um, but that's the child I care about. That's the kid I'm worried about. The one who perhaps lives in a poor community, who, um, you know, is living in perhaps an urban area with poor access to healthcare. Uh, don't talk to me about food deserts and all of that stuff. That stuff is fine, but it's not relevant right now. I'm talking about the kid who wakes up every day and is disempowered purely because of the color of their skin. That's the kid I care about. That's the kid I know I, I want to work for. And so what I have been doing or I've been trying to do is to really try to, to silence all the other voices and to focus primarily on black but I'm going to say black women's voices, but you know, I'm generalizing here. It's not just women, but I think black women have something uh, really quite special to add to every conversation, particularly to this conversation. So I read a book, for example, uh, we were talking earlier on about eating disorders. And, you know, I've just read uh, Jessica Wilson's book and I don't know who's read it yet and who hasn't. But you have to read it. This book is essential. It's called It's Always Been Ours. Um, and then Chrissy King's just brought out a book. You need to read that. I haven't read it yet. Like we need to be reading books. We need to be learning. We need to be educating ourselves. We need to really understand which kid we're advocating for. Because when we start advocating for that child, every other child is going to benefit as well. Unless we advocate for that child, then we're going to miss people out. And I, I guess to me, like, please make that your primary goal. Everybody needs to make that your primary goal. And then if there was one practical thing I would recommend to people is we just need to get out of the habit of weighing kids. Just You just have to say no. And so that starts from the beginning. Your baby is, is weighed at birth. And then there has to be a few weights because we need to make sure your baby is thriving in the first few weeks, right? Like, Because children who are failing to thrive in the first few weeks are seriously ill and need to be hospitalized probably as a result. But beyond that, once they start growing, we don't need to weigh them ever again in their lives. Never, ever, ever again. There will be a few circumstances when we will have to weigh them. For example, if we need to know the dose of a particular medication, which by the way, is far fewer medications than you think it is. But yeah, maybe we'll need to do that. But that is the exception to the rule. Do not weigh your children. Don't weigh them at home. Don't let them be weighed at the doctor's office. Don't let them be weighed at school. Don't let them be weighed anywhere. And that's not just fat kids. That's every child on the planet. If we stop weighing children, if we simply all as parents or aunties or uncles or whatever, all collectively stand together and say, 
no, you can't weigh us. I mean, I actually literally came up with a campaign slogan, which is no way. Just stop weighing people. It's not going to fix everything. But if you can't weigh me, then you can't tell whether or not I'm fat, right? And you can look at me and say, I think your body mass index is, but you don't know. And it's the same for kids. If you don't want your child to, 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 to be harmed, and believe you me, the medical profession is trying to harm your child. It doesn't matter what size they are. The medical profession is trying to harm children by weighing them, just say no. And once we've got into the habit of just saying no, and once our children are just like, what's that, a weighing scale? I've never seen one of those. I don't want to get on that. What is that? You know, I want our children to fear the weighing scale, to be like, that is a weird thing. I've never seen one before. I'm not getting on that. I don't trust it. And I have seen some kids, like my kids, are just like, you know, if there's, if someone says, I want to weigh you, my kids will be like, nah, thanks. I'm out. You know, and kids can be so dismissive, right? They can be brilliant like that. A 10 year old, a 15 year old just looking at you and giving you a look. You're just like, okay, fine. No worries. So stop weighing children. Period. Let's leave it at that. It will change some things. It won't fix everything, but it will change something. So that was my little bit of, you know, if you want to try something, try that. Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Amazing. Thank you, Asher. All right, we're going to do a last go around. So my question for the group is, what is something that you hope each listener takes away from this conversation? Just one thing that you hope our listeners take away. Reagan, let's start with you this time. I hope you take away that you can't trust research and guidelines. Just because people with a lot of letters behind their names said something does not mean it is trustworthy, does not mean you can apply it safely to your life or your children's life. Um, you got to question these things. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Reagan. Asher, one thing. Like I said, when you think of that kid, make sure that kid has is a Black child. Think of your of, of the most marginalized first and then think about everyone else because that is the only way we're going to get anywhere. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks, Asher. Rachel, how about you? It's hard to narrow it down to one thing, but I think um, one thing I hope people take away is that fat kids are worth fighting for and deserve to have full lives in their fat bodies and that we don't need to, we don't need to try to prevent them from existing, you know, that people take away that they can fight and fat kids are worth fighting for. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. Kanoi, how about you? I hope they take away um, to question everything. Love your fat children. Love them. Love them. Love them. Speak love and life and anything beautiful into the lives of your fat children because as many ways as this world will try and kill them they need to know that their lives are worth it and they're worth it yeah yeah thanks can i oh i'm really moved to tears right now by all of you um, th this has been such a powerful, powerful conversation. Um, thank you, Kanoi, Reagan, Rachel, Asher. I mean, I am so inspired by all of you. I know everyone listening also is. 
Um, for those of you who are listening, thank you for being in the conversation with us. This is tough stuff. This is really hard to talk about and to stay present to, especially when we're talking about harms that are inflicted on children. Um, so thank you for being here. And um, when we I keep thinking about how when we come together in community and when we advocate for those who need it most, when we shine a light on the racist, ableist, classist, anti-fat underpinnings of these guidelines, like this is where hope and joy live. It's in the rebellion. It's in the questioning. It's, it's in the just saying no, no, fuck no, in fact, if you choose. So um, thank you. And I just wish all of us like bucket loads of fat joy to take away with us for the rest of the day. So thank you, everyone. <sighs> thank you to my guests. You've been amazing. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about, expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. What a powerful conversation, right? I'm still sitting with everything that came up um, from the round table, the frustration, the anger, the incredulity, the power of coming together and speaking, witnessing each other, witnessing what may happen for people that we support and serve. Um, there's just a lot. There's a lot. I feel really um, both in the wonder and the grief of that conversation. So for the poem today, I'm going to read Elegy by Aracelis Germay because it uh, also connects me into that feeling of the both and, of the paradox, of the how do we keep doing this. So here it is. What to do with this knowledge that our living is not guaranteed? Perhaps one day you touch the young branch of something beautiful and it grows and grows despite your birthdays and the death certificate and it one day shades the heads of something beautiful or makes itself useful to the nest. Walk out of your house then believing in this. Nothing else matters. All above us is the touching of strangers and parrots, some of them human, some of them not human. Listen to me, I am telling you a true thing. This is the only kingdom, the kingdom of touching, the touches of the disappearing things. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. 
All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.